day, for the chance to worship your name, there is nothing better that we as your children could have to do but to be in your presence, to worship you, to extol your holy name. And now as we turn our attention to your word, we want to hear from you, Father. We want to hear what you have for us, so give us spiritual ears, give us spiritual eyes to see how this message applies to our own lives. Father, I give myself to you and pray that you would be the one in charge here. My vocal cords are being used, but Lord, I want you to be in charge of this morning. Bless us, Lord, with your presence. Teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. We men tend to be overconfident at times with our sense of direction. Fair statement? Ladies, fair statement? Fair statement. Let's face it, guys. We like to take trips without consulting a roadmap. We consider that kind of a challenge. And also, it's an opportunity to use our built-in global positioning systems. Now, we will peek at a map if we're miles away from home and have no reason to be expected to know where we are. But if we're within about a 300-mile radius of our home turf, you know, kind of in our backyard, so to speak, we will navigate on testosterone alone. (laughs) But sometimes that overconfidence in our testosterone-fueled GPSs proves to be unfounded. I'll share a personal example. A few years ago... Susie and I, along with our daughters, hopped in the car the day after Thanksgiving to head out to the Christmas tree farm where we had been the year before to get our tree. And by the way, it's the same Christmas tree farm we have gone to every year since. When we got about a block or two from home, Susie asked me if I remembered to bring the little postcard that was mailed to us, you know, the one with the little map on the back telling us how to get there. And of course, I had forgotten. So I said, no, honey, but I don't really think I need it. Been there once before, kind of have that homing thing going on. I also have the built-in GPS here. And furthermore, I know that your mom and dad are going out there, and they've been out there uh, several times, so we'll just follow them. I don't think it's going to be a problem. So after stopping by John and Audrey's house and falling in behind them, we began to caravan to the Christmas tree farm. Now, one thing you need to know And something that in retrospect I should have taken into consideration in this whole affair is that in those days, John's foot was a little heavier on the gas pedal than was mine. Am I right, John? (laughs) I tend to hang pretty close to the speed limit, and John, well, let's say not so much. Well, I kept up with John while on the main road, but quickly lost sight of him as he hit the afterburners on the back road. All I could see after a short time was this progressively diminishing dot on the horizon until, poof, it was gone. At that point, I was truly on my own, but I wasn't really all that worried about it because I still had the built-in GPS, and besides, I had been there once before, so there's the homing piece that comes into play. I think this was going to be a piece of cake. Well, you probably know how the story turns out, don't you, without me even having to finish it. Yes, my GPS failed. And yes, I got into a little bit of hot water with my wife. Eventually, we arrived, but not without experiencing just a little bit of tension in the car. Now, the reason I told that story was not to out myself necessarily, but 
because there's kind of a moral to it that connects to the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And here it is. I had a misplaced confidence in my sense of direction, and that misplaced confidence proved to be a barrier to reaching my destination. And here how, here's how that's apropos to this morning. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's going to teach us that how misplaced confidence in our sense of spiritual direction actually serves as a barrier to reaching our spiritual destination, which is truly knowing Christ. So let's turn on our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read the first 11 verses together. All right. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, in a nutshell, Paul's message here is that in order to truly know Christ, and that's the really the pinnacle or the apex of this passage is knowing Christ, we need to identify and put away all efforts to obtain righteousness through works. We need to stop trusting in our self-acquired merit if we're to truly know Jesus, if we're to become totally identified with him and completely fulfilled in him. As Paul puts it, and the reason I titled my sermon as I did, we need to put no confidence in the flesh. All right, let's unpack this passage, see how Paul makes his case, and in doing that, hopefully we'll learn some things, okay? In verse 2, Paul warned the church in Philippi to look out for the dogs, to look out for the evildoers. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And Paul's not referring to three separate people groups here. Rather, he's providing three very colorful descriptions of a single people group, a group that has caused him lots of pain, has plagued him and his converts constantly. And that's a group called the Judaizers. So if you're asking yourself, who in the world are the Judaizers, here's who they were. They were a sect of pseudo-believers who insisted that faith plus works of the law were necessary for salvation. 
circumcision of the males being on the very top of their list of works of the law. Put simply, the Judaizers were promoting self-acquired merit through religious practice. And Paul had some pretty strong words to say against the Judaizers, the reason for which was because their position, salvation equals faith plus works, contradicted his position, thus the biblical position, and that is that salvation equals faith plus nothing. Nothing. Paul explains in verse 3, take a look. We, for we are the circumcision, meaning simply that we are the people of God, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and, here it is, put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, being saved and becoming a child of God has nothing to do with our works. Nothing. It is a supernatural, spiritual work that is initiated by God and ultimately completed by God. Now, Paul said much the same thing to another church, the church in Ephesus. It's much more eloquent in the reason that we tend to, to quote these two verses more than the one that we're looking at this morning. It's this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. All right, so after contending that we have no cause to put confidence in the flesh, for our salvation, Paul then used his own experience to solidify this point. And he did so, first of all, by establishing his right. I'm using air quotes, but I only have one hand, so I have to do it twice. Humanly speaking, that is, to put confidence in the flesh. Look at the second half of verse 4. He says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. The contemporary English version puts it this way, and I kind of prefer this one. Others may brag about themselves, but I have more reason to brag than anyone else. Then Paul went on next couple verses, verses 5 and 6, to outline this religious portfolio that was rivaled by none. A very, very impressive list of credentials, which fell into two basic categories. First of all, he gave four reasons for him to boast due to his heritage or his bloodline. And then he added three more reasons to boast earned by personal choice and conviction. So let's just take a look at those. With regard to his heritage, he said, first of all, that he was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning he was no proselyte. He was no convert. He didn't come into this religion through the side door. Rather, he was born a Jew to good Jewish parents who conformed to the letter of the law as prescribed in Leviticus 12.3. Secondly, he was of the people of Israel, He was a member of the elite race. The blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob flowed through his veins. Thirdly, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. This is the tribe from which the first of Israel's kings, King Saul, had come. And secondly, and I think more importantly, the only tribe that hung in with the tribe of Judah and thus were faithful to the the Davidic throne at the time of the division of the kingdom. And lastly, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And this is a reference to language, meaning he was reared and taught via the Hebrew mother tongue. So those are the four things on the brag list due to heritage. But he also had some reasons to brag based on his own decisions, his own convictions. First of all, he said he was a Pharisee, in other words, a member of the most orthodox of the Jewish parties. 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, meaning he wasn't just enthusiastic about his faith, rather he was radically zealous. And lastly, as to righteousness, righteousness under the law, blameless. As an earnest Pharisee, Paul had paid meticulous credentials, or I'm sorry, attention to the requirements of the Mosaic law, and no one could charge him with failure to keep it, at least as they were looking from the outside in, because they couldn't see his heart. Now, those credentials might not be all that impressive to us due to the distance that separates us from Paul in both time and culture, and because I think it's really important for us to catch the impressiveness of his credentials I'm going to put this into contemporary terms, maybe more culturally understandable terms, by paraphrasing verses 4b through 6. And we're going to call this the contemporary Gordon version, okay? So had Paul been born in our time and place, these verses might read like this. If anyone else thinks he has reason to brag, I have more. Here we go. Born into a Christian family, properly dedicated as an infant and baptized at the age of accountability, of the tribe of ordained pastor. My dad was a pastor, so I can say that. This isn't my brag list, by the way, but this would be kind of comparable to what Paul was saying. Of Baptist tradition, and, and perhaps if you're not Baptist, just insert your own denomination here. But I was born and raised a Baptist, so I'm going to use that one. Of Baptist tradition, a Baptist of Baptists, well-versed at a young age in Christianese phrases such as anointed, hallelujah, backslidden, praise offering, washed by the blood, slain in the spirit, and the coup de grace, hedge of protection. As to the law, a memorizer of Scripture, as to zeal and attender of every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and midweek service, not to mention every Sunday school class, as to righteousness, a reader of Scripture, a devout man of prayer, and a deacon in the church. Now, did that help? By putting, did that put it into context a little bit? I don't want you to be impressed with me. That, like I said, that wasn't necessarily my break list. I want you to understand just how impressive Paul's credentials were. They were very, very impressive. But as impressive as Paul's credentials were, he wasn't willing to put confidence in them because they were not the right credentials. They were fleshly credentials or worldly credentials, and Paul knew they were not good enough. He knew they would not earn him righteousness, nor would they add in any way to the righteousness he had in Christ and only in Christ. His worldly qualifications were once beneficial to him, that is, in his old life, before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. But they were worth nothing now. This is how he put it in verse 7. Take a look. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's really important to understand that the original Greek word translated loss here isn't a wimpy word. It's a very, very strong word, thus indicating that Paul wasn't just dismissing his earthly credentials and kind of becoming indifferent to them. Rather, he rejected them in horror and considered them a serious liability. It's as if he would have said, anathema, cursed be these works. One of the responsibilities I had when I worked as an administrator of an optometry clinic years ago, obviously before I became a pastor, 
was to recruit for open positions, to do the hiring. And whenever I recruited for an open receptionist position at our front desk, I would receive hordes of applications and resumes. They just would pour in more by far than I would receive for any other open position in the clinic. Many of those applications and resumes that I received for receptionist position came with a very long list, very, very impressive skills and qualifications, like computer skills. You know, I just thought of just the second. Is, remember when we saw Napoleon Dynamite and nunchuck skills? I just went there for a second. How oh, that really threw me. Computer skills, especially as it relates to software. Office equipment skills. Counts receivable experience. Counts payable experience. And on and on that list would go. A list, very impressive list of qualifications. But here's the thing. They were not the right qualifications. And that's because a receptionist position at an optometry clinic, and I would imagine any sort of medical clinic, requires people skills far more than it requires computer and or office equipment skills. And I believe that's what Paul was getting at here. He had impressive qualifications, impressive credentials. He just didn't have the right ones for the job. All right, so once Paul felt that he had sufficiently established the fact, excuse me, that no one has cause to put confidence in the flesh, including himself, as much as he had this incredible, impressive list of credentials, Paul then stepped it up a notch in order to make his more profound and, I think, main point in verse 8. Let's look at that verse again together. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss, Because of, if you're reading out of the NIV, you're going to see the word compared to, because of or compared to the surpassing worth or greatness, again, NIV, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I love the way uh, the message interprets this. He calls it dog dung in order that I may gain Christ. Paul counted everything a loss, everything. Anything that might conceivably be reckoned as commendable and claimed to be acceptable to God by the religious person. Anything at all that is attached to faith as a requirement for salvation. And that's because Paul saw religiosity, that sort of going through the emotions religion, as not only ineffective, not only worthless, but he saw it as a barrier or as an obstacle to knowing Christ and thereby, verse 9, being found in him, found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul is saying here is that when we put no confidence in the flesh, I mean zero confidence in the flesh, but rather consider all of our fleshly credentials and qualifications as loss or as dog dung, it is then and only then, verse 10, that we can know him. That is, know Christ. And this is, we're at the apex of the passage right now. That's what it's about, is knowing Christ. And and by knowing Christ, Paul doesn't mean head knowledge here. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a very deep, personal knowledge of Christ to that point where we become like him. We become conformed to his image. When we put no confidence in the flesh, it's then that we may also share in his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death. When we are in total identification with Christ, we can more readily die to the former sinful life. Whereas, think about this for a minute, if we hang on to some confidence in the flesh, even just a little bit, it becomes very difficult to bury self, to keep it down. When we remove the flesh confidence barrier, when we put no confidence whatsoever in the flesh, it is then possible to place all of our confidence in Christ. When we remove the flesh confidence barrier, we will truly experience the power of his resurrection, verse 10. We can look exclusively to the power that raised Christ from the dead as that which will enable us to live a new life. But if we still hang on to some confidence in the flesh, we will believe that we have some of that power and we do not. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul wrote these words. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Did you hear who was responsible for that? It's all God. God made us alive in Christ. We didn't do that. God raised us up with Christ. We didn't do that. And he did all of it out of the richness of his grace and mercy. God gets all of the glory. We get none of it. But we do get the benefit when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, let me get a little personal and ask you a question. And I want you to be honest with yourself, okay? Really think about this carefully. Are you putting confidence in anything at all in addition to God's grace for your salvation, even if only a little bit of confidence for a little bit of that salvation? Let me put it this way. For you, does salvation equal faith plus something? Anything at all? Let me give you some examples. Maybe you'll identify with one or more of these. Maybe it's faith plus heritage. Meaning I trust Jesus and thank goodness I grew up in a good family. That's got to count for something. Or maybe it's faith plus denomination. I trust Jesus and I'm in the right church. I'm sure God credits me for that. Now, if you're here this morning, you are in the right church, but it has nothing to do with this message. Or maybe it's faith plus goodness. I trust Jesus, and whew, I'm a pretty good guy, too. Or maybe it's faith plus honesty. I trust Jesus, and I, and I don't tell lies, and I don't cheat on my taxes, either. Or maybe it's faith plus scripture memorization. I trust Jesus, and oh, good thing I can recite a whole lot of verses, too. Or faith plus church attendance. I trust Jesus and I go to church almost every week. Or maybe it's faith plus service. I trust Jesus and I volunteer in the nursery. Or maybe it's faith plus proficiency in Christianese. I trust Jesus and, oh, praise the Lord, I can pray very, very eloquently. You see what I'm getting at? You see what I'm saying? If there is a something even a tiny little something that you add to your faith in order to be saved, what you have is work, works-based religion. And work-based religion is a barrier. 
an obstacle to really knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. It becomes an obstacle to finding real, lasting joy and fulfillment of purpose in the only place where it lies. That is, in a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, given by grace and received by faith. If there is a something attached to your faith for salvation, some work that you're kind of hanging on to even just a little bit. It's important that you understand where works belong. Put them there and leave them there. So where do they belong? Works are a joyful, natural outpouring of a fully contented relationship with Christ by grace through faith alone, not as a way to earn God's favor. That's so important, I'm going to say it again. Works are a joyful and natural outpouring of a fully contented relationship with Christ by grace through faith alone, not as a way to earn God's favor. We have no cause whatsoever to put confidence in our flesh for salvation. Our confidence should be in Christ alone, our hope in grace alone. We need to reject Eminently reject works for salvation. Consider those works as dog dung. Now, lest I push the pendulum too far the other direction with regard to works, I do need to say that even though we're not saved by good works, good works are not irrelevant. And that's because, according to the Bible, we are saved for good works. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, the verse immediately following, verses 8 and 9. Go figure, 8, 9, 10, kind of come in order. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, here it is, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And not only are we saved for good works, our works or lack thereof serve as evidence that indicates the presence or the absence of real faith, the vehicle through which God's grace is received. Listen to James. In James 2, verses 14 and 17, he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead, meaning it's not real faith because real faith produces action. If we have real faith, the kind of faith that has truly received and embraced the grace of God as poured out in and through his son, Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us we will have the Holy Spirit living within us. And if we have the Holy Spirit living within us, we will have works of the Spirit that flow naturally from us. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old, that is the one without those good works, is gone. The new, that is the one created in Christ Jesus to do good works, has come. But becoming that new creation, I'm coming back to the gist of this message, becoming that new creation, i.e. salvation, has nothing to do with what we've done. It's a work of God through Jesus Christ. 
and to put confidence in anything other than or in addition to Jesus Christ for our salvation or for our righteousness is to set up barriers to truly knowing him, to truly identifying with him, becoming like him, and fellowshipping with him. And we do not want to do that. And the reason is, is that knowing Christ, remember the apex of this message, knowing Christ is everything. It's not just a little something. It is everything. It's where true and lasting joy and fulfillment lies. Nowhere else but in knowing Christ. So I want to challenge each one of us to make it our goal, as Paul made it his goal, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So please don't put confidence in your misguided sense of direction like I did to get to the Christmas tree farm. Consult the roadmap, and in this case, the roadmap is the Word of God. The directions are given very clearly there, and if we follow those directions, we will arrive safely at our destination. Let's pray together. Father, it's so very critical that we get this, that we not put any confidence whatsoever in our heritage or in our actions for salvation. It's a free gift that we receive from you through our faith. And you get all the glory for it. It's not like you looked down and saw us and said, you know, those folks are pretty good. I think I'll bring salvation to them. You said, they're all sinners. But I love them. So I'll plant a desire in their heart for me. God, if there's anyone here who's confused about that message, please bring clarity right now. Because knowing Jesus Christ is everything. I praise you for that free gift of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you all stand?